This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, you interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In the late 19th century, a group of Mennonites leave Russia for what is now Uzbekistan, driven out by Russian demands that the pacifist group make themselves available for conscription, and pushed forward by prophecies of the imminent return of Christ, over a hundred families travel in a grueling journey, eventually building a settlement and church that locals still remember fondly today. Over a century later, the author Sophia Sameter comes across this story when exploring her own Mennonite heritage, and learns that there's an organized tour. Thus begins a pivot key to her latest book, The White Mosque, combining both historical narrative and travel writing as Mennonites past and present make the journey to Central Asia. Sophia Sameter is the author of the novels A Stranger at Alondria and The Winged Histories, the short story collection Tender, and Monster Portraits, a collaboration with her brother, the artist Del Sameter. Her work has appeared in several best-of-the-year anthologies, including the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. Sameter holds a Ph.D. in African Languages Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she currently teaches African Literature, Arab Literature Translation, and Secondary Fiction at James Madison University. Today, Sophia and I talk about both the Mennonite travels to Central Asia, her own journey alongside it, and how that connects to her own experience as someone with multiple backgrounds. So, Sophia, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about um, the White Mosque. My first question is, uh, what actually is the White Mosque? What is the namesake for, for your book? Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. So the White Mosque is the English translation of Akhmachet, which is the name of a village in Uzbekistan. And this village was um, the home of a community of Mennonites who had migrated to Central Asia from Um, what was then Southern Russia, it's now Ukraine, in the 1880s. And they came and settled in this village of Akhmachet and um, had their own community there for about 50 years until 1935. 
And I've heard a couple of different stories about how the village got that name. Um, But the first one I heard and the one that really sort of um, intrigued me was that the village was named for the Mennonites' church. They had this whitewashed church, so this white building in the village square in the middle of the village, and that to the local population, which was largely Muslim, this church was known as a white mosque. So, I mean, what actually brought this Mennonite community to Central Asia in the first place? Why why did they try to, why did they make this journey and, and then settle down in this region? Yeah, there were a couple of different sort of um, strands that um, that pushed that to happen. I think, you know, as is the case very often with um, historical events or life in general, right? It's usually not one cause. It's kind of a number of things come together to cause something to happen. And in the case of the Mennonites, so Mennonites are um, a peace church traditionally, um, do not go to war, do not participate in the military. And throughout um, Mennonite history, this has been a reason for a lot of migrations, because very often historically, whenever Mennonites were being conscripted or um, compelled to join an army, they would depart, they would leave and move on somewhere else. So they had gone, um, they had settled in southern Russia because they had been um, given a promise that they would not have to join the military. However, toward the end of the 19th century, that special um, right was being revoked. So the Mennonites were leaving that part of the of the world at that moment. They were leaving their their colonies they had set up in southern Russia. Most of them were going west. They were going to um, the U.S. and Canada. But there was a smaller group who felt that the right thing to do was not to go west, but to go east. And this is the group um, that forms the subject of my book. And they were led by a very charismatic preacher, a man named Klaus Epp Jr., who prophesied that Christ would return to meet this community in Central Asia on March 8, 1889. So he actually had it, you know, down to a date. This was based on his reading and interpretation of the Bible, especially the book of Daniel and Revelation. So the the first decision, the decision to leave Russia was you know, based on something that affected the whole Mennonite um, community in that region. But the specific choice of Central Asia um, stemmed from this leader. And there were some other leaders, too, who um, who agreed with him or who, who, you know, who also felt that this was um, this was the right direction to go. So I do have a question about about your journey and the journey that you made to this part mm. of the world. But I think um, there's a reading from the book that I think is a is a really good segue into this question. So I might ask you um, to uh, read one of the opening passages in your book. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the book 
is written in a series of short sections, and the one that I'm going to read is toward the beginning of the book, and the title of this little section is Beautiful Error. What brought me here? In a way, I've arrived by accident. I'm haunted by a little piece of history. The story of a small, hardy, stubborn group of people who traveled here more than a hundred years ago. I am haunted by a photograph of their church, blanched with whitewash, standing among the poplars of an arid village square. When I first saw it, I imagined its thick walls were made of crystal, that its surface would taste of salt and that it could contain more than was physically possible, like a word. Because I saw this church in a photograph, I felt I could hold it in my hand. Because the photograph was a century old, I felt I was holding my century, the one in which I was born, the 20th century. Because the church was located in Central Asia, in what is now Uzbekistan, a place I had never seen and of which I knew practically nothing, I felt it was very foreign. Because the church was a Mennonite church, belonging to my own denomination, the faith tradition of my mother's family, I felt it was very close. To be very close to the very foreign is one definition of haunting. As the most prominent landmark of the village where it stood, the church in the photograph gave the place its name, Akhmachet, the White Mosque. To the local population, largely Muslim, the church was a white mosque. Beautiful error, radiant mistake, Whether one is Christian or Muslim or neither, churches and mosques form nodes of powerful feeling. Passions cluster about them. Some perceive them as violently opposed, charged in such a way that they must repel one another. Others would place them together as representatives of the same monotheistic, extremist, world-conquering impulse. But whether you see the forces these places emit as wildly different in character, generating worldviews that can never touch, or whether you see them as unified at a deep level, amplifying one another in a sizzling sibling rivalry, or whether your opinion partakes of both notions, I'm in this electrical storm. My mother's family are Swiss-German Mennonites, my father's Somali Muslims. I stand amid this lightning, which, here in the 21st century, only seems to be growing more intense. And so I wished to go inside the church that was a mosque, its simplicity, its almost blinding pallor. The church crumbled decades ago. It no longer exists. A pilgrimage, then, to error, to ghosts, to the accidental, to the glow. Well, thank you for for reading that passage from your book. This now leads me to my question, which is, um, which is, you see this church, you hear about this story, 
Um, why did you join a tour to go to go to this part of the to go to this part of the world and to see this for yourself? Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I. I came across this tour. I didn't know that this tour existed before I started writing the book. So it was about, I worked on the book for about three years before I actually went on the trip. Um, so by the time I went on this two-week two tour of Uzbekistan that winds up kind of, you know, forming the narrative of the book, um, I had already been digging into research on these Mennonites in the area for a number of years. And then I found that there was actually a Mennonite heritage tour of Uzbekistan, which traced the path of these people, um, not all the way back from what's now um, Ukraine, but from, um, from Tashkent. So the tour started in Tashkent and then traveled to the, um, the city of Khiva, which is the, the largest city um, kind of capital of the province where the village of Akhmachet is. And, and the, the final, you know, stage of the tour was actually a visit to the village of Akhmachet. So, of course, once I found out um, that there was this tour where I could go to the places um, where these people had gone, it was like, I, I have to do this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the idea that there's a whole tour for this is, it's, I guess me being uninformed, it's not the kind of thing you would think would have an organized tour around it, but, but there yeah. is. Yeah, there is. And I, I mean, I'm, I just like you, I, I also didn't um, expect there to be one. And this is, um, it's a very interesting tour. It, it has been going, I believe the first one, it's definitely a 21st century phenomenon. So I think the first tour was around 2007 um, or 2005, somewhere around there. And the first tour was actually, um, all the people on that tour were descendants of the um, Akhmachet Mennonites, of the group that had settled in the village. And um, they were, you know, they were returning to kind of see where their, their ancestors had lived. But then um, there was enough interest within the wider um, community of Mennonites, of people who are interested in Central Asia, of people who are interested in, you know, German-speaking migrant communities. I mean, it just turned out that there were um, there was enough interest to um, to continue doing the trip. And in fact, there's another one happening this fall. So, what are the kinds of people that that went on this tour? Um, did you? I mean, what were some of the people who joined you in on your travels? Yeah. So there were um, a number of descendants, um, a number of people who had. Um, um, family ties to the group. There were other people who um, were Mennonites from either you know, the U.S. or Canada um, who make a practice of studying Mennonite history. And so they go on various sort of um, trips and kind of um, they're interested in any kind of learning experience that puts them in touch with um, various facets of Mennonite history. There was um, also someone who was from a, a society that is interested in German-speaking groups who settled in Canada. 
So that person was not Mennonite, but was interested in groups similar to the Mennonites who were, um, who were a German speaking group. Um, and then there was me. So maybe I want to go back in time again into the, I guess, to the, the trip that inspired this tour, which is probably a lot less comfortable for the people involved. Um, but what happens to the Mennonites who then kind of make this, um, I'm going to use the word pilgrimage. I don't think that's not the right term, but basically make this journey. Um, I assume it's a hard journey. I think many don't make it. Um, what were some of the, I guess, historical figures, some of the people that kind of led this journey um, to eventually found the the White Mosque? Yeah, I mean, this this was... So when I first, you know, came across this photograph, um, and that photograph was taken in 1932 by uh, a Swiss traveler named Ella Maillard, who um, was was traveling in uh, in the region and visited Akhmachet while the Mennonites were still living there. And she actually becomes a character in her own right in the book. I kind of follow her and, and look into her story. Um, but when I came across that that photograph, you know, that was just kind of the surprise of, wait, what? Mennonites in Uzbekistan? I never heard this story. Um, and then when I started researching it, it, it just, um, it's such a rich story. It's so full of fascinating topics, um, which wound up becoming um, a lot of the material of the book. So there's this whole thing with um, this this preacher, Klaus Epp Jr., and the idea of the end of the world, right? So this is, I mean, you use the word pilgrimage. I think in some ways, that's that's a good term. I mean, a pilgrimage is uh, is a journey that has a special significance. It has a, often a sacred significance, and it is a journey in which I mean the path is known. Right? A pilgrimage is not just wandering around. A pilgrimage there's a destination and there's a particular structure to that journey, and in the kind of apocalyptic thinking um, that we see in a leader like Klaus Epp and some of the other Mennonite leaders, um, apocalyptic thinking is also something where there's a destination. I mean, it's a destination in time rather than space, but it is it is a movement toward the end of the world, which is predicted and is known. So it's also not, you know, that you're sort of wandering in time or you're kind of like, oh, something happened today, something else happens tomorrow. No, this is a vision that gives you a particular destination and end. Um, And so that was a really fascinating and interesting dynamic, especially because it's one that is very common all over the world, right? Both historically, there have been many different times, many people who have predicted the end of the world, um, and it's something that's very much still with us. So that became interesting, but then the journey itself was also just, I mean, you say it was, you know, it was, it was less comfortable than, than my, um, you know, ride on a tour bus, which is, which is certainly true. My journey took two weeks, these Mennonites took two years to get from their um, homes that they were leaving to um, Akhmachet, where they eventually settled. And they had, um, you know, 
every kind of struggle of difficulty from um, the heat to typhoid to, you know, smallpox, all kinds of, you know, epidemics they ran into, um, to just a complete um, lack of understanding, lack of expertise regarding the landscape. Like they were trying to cross the desert with horses and wagons. They should never have done that. They should have used camels. And they did learn their lesson because when they came to a second um, desert area they needed to cross, they did then Um, They used camels the second time, but um, there was a lot of um, just a lot of hardship and, and a lot of deaths, especially deaths of children. Um, And so, you know, through that, another, another element of the story that becomes um, interesting to examine and think about is just, you know, the kind of perseverance um, of these people and and sort of how to read that from where we are now, you know, um, because there are different inter- interpretations, you know, do you read this as, as fanaticism? Do you read this as resilience? Um, do you read it as a kind of spiritual commitment? Do you read it as just, you know, just confusion? Um, and, and there are ways to support all of those all of those interpretations. So, um, yeah, these are some of the things that the, the more I, the more I looked, the more I found with this story. And the, and the Mennonites become, well, the Mennonites become this kind of modernizing force in the community. I mean, they can or they bring new technologies. Um, and I think you draw a comparison between that and how the Mennonite community interacts with the world today um so i mean maybe i'll kind of start with asking kind of kind of the mennonites get to um Apachet and they kind of settle there how do they interact with the community there and then how does that compare and contrast to what the mennonites do today yeah that's that's a really big question and takes me a number of sort of chapters to um to kind of tease out the different pieces mm. of of these dynamics within the book. So so um so but without without being, you know, try to keep it short without being without being reductive. Um so how did the Mennonites interact with their with their neighbors um in Central Asia? By all accounts, relations were very amicable. Um, they had a good relationship with their neighbors. In fact, one of the things that was most moving on the trip was to arrive in Akhmachet and to find that this story is still very well remembered um, in the area. In fact, there is now a Mennonite museum in Chiva where you can go and you can see, and there's a, I mean, we, we went into this museum and the, the team has done an incredible job with things that they've preserved, photographs, and I mean, they, they have wonderful displays related to the Mennonites in the area, which, which was very moving because for us coming from, you know, the, the, you know, most of the people on the trip being sort of North American Mennonites, um, we we really didn't expect that there would be that much um, interest and a and a kind of sympathy with um, 
with this story and with these people. Uh, in Akhmachet, we met people who they made a display for us of objects that had been given um, to their families by the Mennonites when they were deported. Um, because they were deported by the Bolsheviks in 1935, this community. And each head of household was allowed to take sort of one large sack of belongings. And so they were just giving things away to, you know, their neighbors in the surrounding area who were not being deported with them. Um, and people have preserved those things and know where they came from. Um, so, so that was... That's one of the things that I found um, really wonderful about this story is the way that these people, after a huge disappointment, right, because they expected the world to end, they expected Christ to return, and that didn't happen. Um, but really, to me, the story becomes most interesting after that because mm -hmm. they didn't leave. They stayed there and they, they made, um, you know, they had... A community there. Now, how does that relate to the way that Mennonites um, operate in the world today? I think there are some, certainly some parallels. Um, there are still, you know, Mennonite um, communities that, that make it um, a point and part of their purpose to be in good relationship with all the people around them, regardless of, you know, what those people, what religion those people practice or what their ethnicity is or what their culture is like or, or anything like that. Um, but there's also a um, very prominent um, missionary history um, among Mennonites and that I Take um, that I have a more critical eye toward, um, and I and mm. I express that in the book because one of the the um, one of the characteristics of the Mennonites in Central Asia was that they were not evangelists, they were not trying to convert anybody, and they were not trying to. Um, that was not part of their worldview, um, and to me the positive relations that they were able to have with their neighbors um, stems partly from that, from the fact that they did not sort of um, take on any kind of missionary um, outlook. So I, I want to talk or ask now about how um, you see all this in light of your own background, um, and you are someone of mixed heritage, as you noted in your reading. You are um, descended from both um, the Mennonite community, but also a community of, of Somali Muslims. Um, you, as I said, you have a mixed background, and how do you kind of understand this story and your journey in light of um, in light of your mixed heritage? Yeah, this was this was one of the um, really interesting kind of um, transformations for me personally in investigating this history um, and writing this book because being mixed, being mixed, you know, in kind of every way, like ethnically, culturally, you know, two different you know religions in my family. Um, I had I had grown up feeling like just a real weirdo, 
you know, like, Mm. just like, where in the world is there a place for such a person? This is such a strange combination of things. Um, And, and I felt that, you know, belonging was sort of always an issue, like how to belong, how to be part of a community. But in, in studying this story, um, I kind of came to the realization that, look, everybody is multiple. Everybody is the result of multiple and varied experiences. And when you think about, you know, what is a self? What is a person? Um, of course, you can you can think of, and probably the simplest um, go-to is like, well, what's that person's heritage? Hmm. Um, and I think that that definition of a self has become very prominent um, in recent times, partly because of um, the rise of genetic testing, right? So now people, we have all these tools to find out all these things about our heritage, like I'm, you know, I'm 10% this and I'm 15% that. Um, And that um, is very easy to get attached to. But if you think about who people are, I mean, really, when you find out somebody's um, you know, kind of genetic heritage, you've kind of, in some ways you've found, you've just found out like the least interesting thing about that person, right? I mean, so many, who that person is, is made up so much of what have they read? What are they listening to? What do they, what do they think? What do they believe? What do they dream about? And, um, and I feel that those things are, you know, those kind of um, narrative pieces, the person's story of who they are, those things are certainly as important as the genetics. Um, and I feel in many ways, you know, should be, should be stressed over and above um, the genetics. And if you look at, at people in that way, you rapidly see that there is nobody who's um, experience is limited to one particular strand of culture or to the traditions of one particular ethnic group. That's just not, that's not actually how human life works. And so, you know, by the end of this trip and the end of this book project, rather than thinking of myself as different from everybody else, because you know, it had looked to me as I was growing up that, oh, everybody has kind of a a place to belong and I don't. Now I see that completely differently. And I see that on the contrary, whether people recognize it or not, everybody is multiple. Everybody is varied and um, has a, you know, a plethora of diverse experiences that go into making up who they are. You know, I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation with Sophia Somerter, author of The White Mosque, a memoir. Sophia, I actually have two final questions for you, um, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And second, uh, what do you think the next project might be? Sure. Thank you. Um, so people can find this book really wherever um, 
books are sold. I myself am a fan of bookshop.org, which allows, um, which supports independent bookstores, but you can also find it, you know, at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, all the, all the places. Um, and what's coming up next for me um, in the fall, I have a book coming out, which is a collaborative work with a friend of mine, the writer Kate Zambrino. The book is called Tone, and it is about, um, it's about tone in literature and what, what is tone. And we kind of try to investigate um, and do read a number of different books to study what tone is. And then in 2024, I have a science fiction novella that is coming out that is called The Practice, The Horizon, and The Chain. Well, I would definitely want to hear more about both of those projects um, in the future. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news on who's coming up on the show. But before then, Sophia, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about the White Mosque. Thank you, Nicholas.